Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, friends. Rick Thomas here. Let's do a little bit of Life Over Coffee. Last week in episode 459, I said I have a whopper question for you as a lady was writing in and asking about spanking, parental discipline. Well, not to outdo ourselves, this week I think the question is even more whopperish, if that is a word. A lady wrote in and she asked about bringing a baby into our evil world. And so I'm going to address her question. I'll share it with you, by the way. And then I've got some things that I want to say, and I I trust it will benefit you. This question is more relevant than, say, it was 20 or 25 years ago. Uh, It's not an unusual question anymore as people are thinking about our chaotic world. It it seems like we're just trying to go downhill as fast as we possibly can, and things are way more chaotic, even more so than they were 10 years ago. And so this question comes up about bringing children into an evil world. And so it is something that we do need to talk about. Here's some of the sample questions that I'm going to address in this episode. Is bringing a baby into our evil world, is it right? Where is the line between God's sovereignty and personal responsibility? We live in a broken world that is full of evil. Every future parent knows that when they bring a baby into the world, the child struggles with brokenness and fallenness while tempted and affected by our corrupted culture. And so where is the balance? How are we to think about these things? Am I wrong not to want to have a baby because of the evil times that we live? Those are some of the questions that I'm going to address. And if you want to check out my show notes, please go to episode 460, Should I Bring a Baby into Our Evil World? You can listen to the podcast. You can watch the video. You can take advantage of all the show notes I have embedded inside episode 460 several links and so if you want to do a deeper dive into this subject you're welcome to do that I think it would be an excellent conversation uh, to have with your friends uh, husbands and wives future parents Uh, This is something that you do want to be settled on in your own mind, uh, because when you do bring a child into the world, it doesn't matter which generation you are in or which century you are in. Uh, There will be suffering. There will be hard times. And I know for us, because us as in America, that we have been living in such a, a splendid time. Uh, in the history of humanity, uh, that suffering is something that has always been out there for Americans and many of you who live in other uh, countries. You've had a, a similar experience. And, and sometimes we forget that uh, suffering and uh, animosity and hostility and wars and famine, these are things that have been common to humanity throughout the centuries, the millennia. But it's unusual for us because, quite frankly, we have been spoiled. And so it takes some work to re-index to a, what I think is a normal way of thinking, which is not how we have been living uh, 
uh, for the past few generations. We have truly been blessed, but we're very much self-aware that uh, those days seem to be in the rearview mirror, at least at this moment in time, and that's why this lady is asking this question. And so let me read the letter that she wrote to me, and then I'll get into uh, and try to tease out, detail out uh, some thoughts that I trust will uh, benefit you. All right, so she asks, or said, I desire to have children one day, but in light of suffering, it almost seems selfish to want a child knowing that it will suffer. In my case, it could inherit a genetic health condition that could somewhat compromise its abilities. But even with that aside, life is full of trouble and suffering. If the child never becomes a believer in Christ, he'll suffer in this life and for eternity. If the child becomes a believer, suffering is seen as a mark of God's grace by disciplining and drawing that child closer to himself. And so while it does at least have a good purpose at that point, it's still suffering. You can feel the the tension. as uh, There's almost a pessimistic tone to this. I already have a view of how this is going to end up. And so whether they become Christians or don't become Christians, our children, our future children, there's a negative outcome. And so all roads lead down the path of pessimism into negativity. And you can, you can sense that in uh, what she is writing. She continues, if the child never exists, it knows nothing of suffering or anything. It won't miss out on God's favor either because, well, it just won't live. If followed, I realize that this line of thinking could quickly diminish the population and go against God's command to be fruitful and multiply and consider children a blessing. I want children, and I love the idea of discipling them and having fun with them. Still, with the kind of suffering that some of us have been through or are going through, especially in the context of those who have challenging marriages, it seems almost cruel and selfish to have a child knowing their destiny is to suffer. Now, for our students in our mastermind program, I want you to hear that last paragraph that she wrote, and you can see how she's mapping her experience over the very question that she is asking, and she's using her experience as a filter to come through uh, to a conclusion. And there's two aspects of her experience that she is bringing to the fore in that last paragraph. One is... She has a genetic uh, a disease of some sort and has a challenging marriage. And so that is a filter. It's a lens. It's a presupposition. And so it gives her a starting point and an interpretive filter. And the reason I bring this up to you, our students, is that I, I want you to practice the skill of listening. And so you're not just hearing the words that she's saying, but you're actually, you can see the filter or the lens through which she is looking at the potential of having children in the future. And so she concludes with a couple of questions. The first one is, when what we long for is heaven and earth holds little attraction anymore, why subject a child to this life? Question number two, how do you find the balance on this? 
I can see that my current suffering severely, now she's saying it now, which I really appreciate her humility and clarity of thought. She says, I can see that my current suffering severely cloud my recent line of thinking. All right, so I want to answer her first question and then just move it aside because it's the easier question to answer. She asks, when what we long for is heaven and earth holds little attraction anymore, why subject a child to this life? Well, that's easier to answer because though heaven is the goal, we carve the path to heaven through this world. Thus, there's no way to get to heaven without coming through this world, and so there are no other options on the table. To have a baby, uh, they must be born the first time, and to get to heaven, they must be born again, and that is the formula, and so there's no other way but to live on earth, and so that is your first question, and that is the only answer there is, so I shall not elaborate any more. But I do want to spend some time responding to your second question, and it is, how do you find the biblical balance on this? And then caveat, I can see that my current suffering severely cloud my recent line of thinking, and so I want to work through how to find the big biblical balance on having a baby, bringing it into a corrupted, evil world, uh, trying to obviate suffering, if at all possible. All right, so the first thing that I want to say, and I guess this would be the second thing, because the first thing I said is that there's no way to get to heaven without having a baby and, and carving a path through earth. And so the second thing is that no third party can or should answer this question for you. And I know you're asking in a spirit of humility, and I receive it that way. Of course, I'm going to be careful not to answer the question for you because I can't, I shouldn't, I won't, and nobody should. This is a personal question that you're asking that you will have to wrestle through yourself, you and your husband, of course, and nobody should answer that question. And so I just want to say that aloud uh, because it not only applies to me, it applies to everyone else too. You have to make that decision and you must stand or fall on the decision that you make. You don't want to lean into somebody else's faith and allow them to make that decision for you, this decision, because this decision is too important. Number three, be careful as you listen to people's personal experiences with how, with how they handled this question and the results of their decision. Now, this is another way that we make decisions. We could let them make it for us, which I say do not do that. And then a second option is we can their opinion, uh, their personal experience, what happened to them, uh, can be so uh, uh tempting to you uh, that you could latch on to their experience and their outcome and then go with it because that's what happened to them. And sometimes when people are speaking into situations like this, they're not careful in how they communicate, and they communicate with this, well, this is what happened to me. 
And typically when that happens, it seems like most of the time they're talking about a bad experience. Well, I did this and it was just horrible and it didn't work out for me and it was the worst thing I ever done, so forth and so on. And so I'm saying be careful as you listen to people's personal experiences because personal experiences are not the Bible. And so you don't want to glom on to what happened to them and respond according to them because God is writing a unique narrative for them and he's writing a unique narrative for you. And so you need to hear from the Lord. Now, there, it's not wrong uh, to solicit opinions and advice from other people as you're doing with me. But number one, I'm not going to answer the question. Number two, I'm going to caution you about glomming on to someone else's experience. All right, so number four, there is a temptation to map your experience over the decision to the degree that your experience becomes your interpretive filter for how you proceed. I've already talked about this earlier as I was uh, giving, making a teaching point to our mastermind students that you want to listen. And as I listen to you ask the question, it is apparent that you have a presuppositional filter that is more suffering-centered and uh, it's, it, it's more negative and I don't mean that in an unkind way, but there's a pessimism, there, there's a cynicism to your questions, and it can really shade the answers that you uh, come to eventually. And so you don't want anybody to make the decision for you. You don't want to glom on to somebody's experience. But then number three, you don't want to glom on to your own experience to where your experience becomes louder than God's Word. And so you want the Bible to speak uh, for you. And I trust that the other advice that you give, though they may say different things, that they will guide you to also guide you down a scriptural pathway, uh, warning you and letting you know that there are temptations here that you're kind of bleeding into, whether it's the experiences of other people or primarily uh, what comes out louder here is your experience is clouding your judgment. However, you did say, and I really appreciate you saying that you your judgment is clouded by your experience. And so I do want to highlight that uh, as well. I want to mark that in red so that uh, it does stay in the forefront of your mind uh, so that you will work hard to come into a bibliocentric decision, not an experiential one. Number five, faith is trusting in God, not in future outcomes. Now, the reason I, I'm saying this to you is because you are looking out into the future, and this is what Jesus warned us against in 634 of Matthew, that uh, don't look out into the future, that we need to trust today, and we don't want to go out and get future worry and bring it into today's circumstance. And I, I think most of us have seen the foolishness of that, and I'm not calling you a fool. I'm just saying that we all have done uh, the foolishness of that where we worried about future outcomes before we ever 
arrived there and then we got to that future point we realized how foolish it was to worry and so we don't want to go out and grab future uh, worry and bring it into our present circumstance we need to trust God not only trust him today but we have to trust him for our future as well And so one of the questions that you will have to answer, I mentioned cynicism, negativity, and pessimism already, and the big word here is fear. Uh, Worry would also be attached to that word cloud as well. And so you have to wrestle through the fear-faith tension dynamic that's going on in your soul. And when fear is more operational in your soul, you will not only worry about what is happening right now, which you are by looking at our current cultural circumstance, but then you will also project that out into the future as you are, and you're thinking about, well, if I bring a child into the world, then uh, it's going to be horrible for them too, and then this just continues to escalate in your own mind, and if you're not careful, that kind of thought process will take your mind captive, and it will become cyclic, like an endless loop that uh, you'll just continually loop around in this fear tension that you have, and it will begin to drive your thoughts and the decision-making that you have. And so I'm appealing to you to not only think through the fear-faith tension, but to really take your soul to task and say, no, I am going to live by faith. What does it mean to live by faith? And if you need help and input on, on doing that, then I appeal to you to get that help so, again, you can be bibliocentric and and not be managed by faith, whether in the, the present tense or as you extrapolate out into the future. Number six, you have to guard against self-reliance. Now, this is tied to fear, by the way. Self-reliance is a, it's a tendency that when, when we are nervous or fearful about how things, let me say it this way, we're not sure God's going to get this right. And if we're not sure God's going to get this right, then we're not going to be God-reliant. We're not going to lean into Him. We're going to become self-reliant. We're going to try to control the whole situation because the fear is driving to such a degree Worry is emanating out of our souls, out of our mouths, up from our hearts. And when worry and fear and anxiety and pessimism and cynicism and negativity, when those things begin to roll in and manage our emotions, our thought life, eventually our emotions, then we begin to uh, have character assassinating thoughts about God. I'm not sure if he's going to do right for me. I'm not sure if God's going to do right for a future child. I cannot rely on him. Therefore, I'm going to rely on myself. I've got to control the narrative. I've got to control my life. I've got to control even whether I'm going to have offspring or not. And in that situation, God becomes a secondary player if he's a secondary actor at all. And then you become the primary actor, the primary player, 
in this story that's making all the determinations. Of course, it's motivated by fear, worry, pessimism, negativity, anxiety, and so forth. And so I'm asking you to guard against self-reliance, which is a human-centered way of trying to control future outcomes because I'm not sure that God is going to get it right. Number seven, part of the self-reliance spirit is not just fear, but it's also anger. You see, I am not going to rely on God if I'm afraid of him, that he's not going to get it right. I'm not going to rely on God if I'm angry at him. You see, fear will cancel out faith, trusting God. Anger will cancel out faith, trusting God as well. And so as I listen to your story and the things that have happened to you is sad. And it is something to grieve over, and you're genuinely struggling. But I'm inserting an admonition here in point number six, guard against self-reliance. And then point number seven, part of the self-reliant spirit, in addition to fear, that motivates you to rely on yourself. Anger, too, can motivate you to rely on yourself because you don't like how life has happened for you, which is a a very passive and subtle way of saying, I don't like God's sovereign rule in my life. Now, that's not an explicit statement that most civilized Christians would say. Uh, We're too polite, and and Christian discretion uh, would say that we're just not going to say that I'm angry with God But there can be such a low-level disappointment with the life that we have that what that really is, if you begin to tease it out and get inside of it, I'm kind of angry with God because of what's happened to me, and I'm not going to put that on a future child. Therefore, I am going to control the narrative self-reliance, born out of fear, and born out of this disappointment that is really anger. Uh, But I'll call it disappointment here because it has a a special nuance that I think is easier to understand. And so born out of this disappointment that I have with life, which is a disappointment in God's sovereign rule over my life, and born out of this fear, I have a self-reliant spirit, and that's why I'm bound up that I can't make this decision. Number eight, what does your husband think about this? Maybe I should have just asked that question first, uh, because that is one of the first questions that you would ask. I mean, obviously, for obvious reasons, this is a husband and wife making a decision about a child. What does your husband think that has to be part of the equation? Number nine, not only ask your husband, you're asking yourself, you ask God as you delve into God's Word. You ask a few trusted, competent friends. I appreciate you coming here and asking me, uh, but you want to ask others with the the guardrails that I presented earlier, those people that map their experience over your question, they can't enter into your question in a more objective way. They come into it and, and they do what you do. Uh, you're, you're filtering this through your own lens and they filter it through their lens and it just really gets convoluted. 
But still, yet, you want to persevere, and you do want to ask a few trusted friends uh, what they think about this. And these are friends that will not say what you want to hear. Uh, These are friends that will speak compassionately because they understand the grief that you're going through, but they will also speak courageously because this is one of the top five decisions or the top five events in your life. What are the top five? There's only five significant events in our life, and the rest of our lives is quite mundane. And so the first event is being born, obviously. The second event, hopefully, uh, is being born again. The third event is getting married. The fourth event is having children. And the fifth event is, well, dying. And those are the five big events in our lives. And you're talking about one of those, which is having children. And so this is a significant question that you're asking. And so you want friends who are willing to grieve with you, but also they're courageous and and they will uh, insert the appropriate compassionate admonitions along the way. Number 10, you both have to be in faith to proceed. And this is what Paul is saying in 1423 of Romans, that you can't proceed unless you're in faith. And I In this episode, 460, I have an article about how to make a biblical decision, and I would encourage you to uh, read it. But when I say you have to be in faith to make a decision, I'm not talking about perfect faith. If you're one of those people that gets tied up in percentages, does it have to be 100% faith? Nobody has ever made that kind of decision because we're fallen people. And so 91% faith, 85% faith, whatever that means, you're not going to have perfect faith, but you really have to be more in faith than out of faith when you make a decision. And if you're more in faith, then you want to lean into it. You you are hope-filled, you are sure, you're convinced, you believe that this is the direction that you should go for the most part. Obviously, you will be wavering a little bit in faith, as we all do on big decisions. I was in faith to marry Lucia, but even on the day of the wedding, I was thinking, like, is this the right thing to do? And and so that can happen, but I had already predetermined that this is God's will. I believe it's right. We sought counsel, et cetera. Uh, we, we, uh, we, We tried to discern what the Bible believed about what we were doing etc. And so I was predominantly in faith, even on the wedding day, though I was, uh, my knees were wobbling just a little bit. And so uh, don't get hung up on perfect faith. Number 11, are you more of a fear-based person? Are you characterized mainly by faith or fear? The reason I'm asking this question is because I know that you're struggling with fear now, but is that how you are normally characterized? See, we can have episodic moments of fear when we come up to specific moments in our lives, and that's normal. You see, and that's what I was saying about our wedding, is that I had an episodic moment of fear standing down at the, uh, in the church building. That was an episodic moment of fear, but the whole characterization of our dating relationship from the time that I believed that we should get married, the whole characterization was fear, uh, faith. <laughs> Sorry, Lucia, it was faith. And uh, I had an episode of fear. And so as you look at your life when it comes to these big decisions, 
are, would people just characterize you as a person of faith or a person of fear? And that's something that you want to wrestle through because uh, that will affect how you think about this decision. Now, when it comes to big decisions and you're characterized by faith, then you have a second layer problem, a primary problem that you have to deal with first. Uh, the having a baby problem uh, is a mirror of the deeper problem of a person characterized by fear and the having baby question that you have, it's only revealing this deeper issue that needs to be rectified and you will not be able to answer this question to complete satisfaction as, as far as having a baby until you deal with this characterization of fear if you are a person characterized by fear. Number 12. Your situation is unique to you, and that is important as you work through this decision. For example, here's an illustration. Every Christian should not homeschool. I get that question a lot. Should we homeschool? Well, I have received that question often. Uh, should we homeschool? Well, it depends. Uh, it really depends on what's going on with you. It depends on the kind of person you are. Can you provide this kind of education? Are you, are you the kind of person that can really, uh, like a wife, for example, can you be that true governess of the home and really manage the home and the children and, and serving your husband, loving your husband and doing all the duties uh, in the home, et cetera? Uh, are you a good teacher, et cetera? So there are unique questions to all of us that there aren't blanket answers. And so having a baby in your situation is unique to you. Like the homeschool question, the answer is not obvious to everybody, and it will be different for everybody. Number 13, perhaps you can consider adoption or foster care. Maybe that's a direction that you can go. Number 14, all babies are born fallen, broken, depraved. All babies need physical and spiritual restoration. And rather than looking at that in a pessimistic, negative way, be just be, be sobered by it as you are, but be motivated to bring change to those within your sphere of influence. And if God gives you a baby, if you all believe that's the thing that you should do, yeah, be sobered, but not sobered to fear, not sobered to paralysis, not sobered to procrastination and pessimism. Be sobered to motivation, that this is an opportunity to spread the fame of God. Despair, defeat, and passivity should not be what controls you. Number 15, don't presume on God's grace, meaning I can do what I want to do because God will take care of it. Now, some couples go to that extreme. Now, you're not exactly saying that, but I wanted to insert here Sometimes we can just take God's grace for granted. You're not taking God's grace for granted. Actually, you're reducing and minimize what God could do in your life and, and through you. But then you have some couples who keep having babies to the detriment of their wife's health, to the detriment of their child, uh, thinking that, well, you know, God is just going to uh, take care of this, uh, and they're presuming on God's grace. And so finally, number 16, your question lodges somewhere between God's sovereign control and management of all things 
and his call on your life to cooperate with him in the redemptive narrative that he is writing for you and your husband. This doctrinal teaching that I'm presenting to you, I mentioned it earlier, is primary and secondary causes. You remember when I was talking about as a self-reliant person, you're the primary causal agent. And God is a secondary actor in this play. That's not how it works. And you want to defeat self-reliance, repent of it, and you want to cooperate with what God is doing in your life as a secondary causal agent, trusting Him, not in a presumptive way where we take God's grace for granted, but we want to trust that uh, not in a foolish way, uh, but we want to uh, try to discern the mind of God through some of the ways that I have laid out for you and then step into cooper- cooperating with what God is doing in your life. Let me share a personal story as I wrap up here. Our last child was born when I was 46 years old. And I knew that I would be 66 before her assumed nest-leaving time what what we do is that when a, when a what I recommend that people do is when a child is born just add 20 years to your life and that's going to be your life give or take and so I figured I'm 46 so that means I'm going to be 66 years old before uh, that she leaves the home and of course that doesn't factor in ongoing care and relational engagement after she becomes an adult I, I hope to be able to interact with her when I'm Uh, when she's 30 and 40 years of age, but that is 76 and 86 years uh, for me. And so we factored those things in, and this perspective that I'm laying out for you, it's not a pessimistic view of life, and it's not an attempt on our part to control outcomes, but I just wanted to think in a realistic way. As much as a finite person is supposed to, we are to make our plans, but God orders our steps. I'm trying to cooperate as a secondary causal agent with what God is doing sovereignly in my life, but I just don't want to presume on God's grace thinking I'm 46 and I'm going to be 66, 76, 86. How would I be able to care uh, for this child that he is bringing into the world? And so you do want to factor those things in. And because of that, Lucia and I chose not to have any more children after our third one was born because I was 46 years old. I wanted to be there uh, for our children. And so I do the things that I'm supposed to do. I eat decently. I work out regularly. I try to do the things that I'm supposed to do to cooperate again as a secondary causal agent, but we made a decision not to have any more children because of the uh, chronological problem that I have uh, becoming an old man. I say that to say that I don't know what disease you have. I don't know the chances of uh, your suffering affecting the quality of life of your future child. I do recommend factoring your disabilities into your decision-making, just as I factored my age and my future ability to provide for our children with a Christ-like physical and spiritual environment that I I wanted to provide for them. And so it's not wrong to think about these things. I appreciate you thinking about them. It is humble. It is wise. It's trying to cooperate with God's redemptive story rather than not thinking, not praying, not asking one of the most important decisions you and your husband will ever make. 
Again, having a baby is one of the top five things, and so I appreciate you asking. I laid out 16 responses here. All of this is in episode 460. Should I bring a baby into our evil world? Now, I want to wrap up, and I'll run through these questions quickly, but you can find them all at episode 460. Number one, to the lady who's actually asking the question, what is your disease? And what does your medical community say about passing it on to your child? I'm sure you've already asked those questions, but maybe I'm putting that out there for anyone else that comes by episode 460. Number two, what are your husband's wishes about having another child? And again, I'm sure you've already factored that in too. Number three, are you primarily self-reliant? Having a hard time trusting God, that is this underlaying problem that you really have to deal with if it is a problem. Uh, the having a baby just highlights and it, it accentuates this and it lets you know there's an underlying problem. Number four, does cynicism manage your thinking? Giving you a pessimistic view of life. I know some people who have been in suffering for so long or a disappointing situation for so long, cynicism can creep in and it can cloud their lens and give them a pessimistic view of life, something to think about. And then finally, number five, what does it mean to live by faith? And so I trust that all these questions are helpful. Uh, the 16 things that I highlighted as well. Uh, again, you can review all of these at episode 460. Should I bring a baby into our evil world? Thanks so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.